Hey, this is Lori from Hike, sharing stories that inspire us to explore, wander, and live. So, I have to admit that being a podcaster has definitely invoked a lot of wanderlust. I get to hear about so many adventures and places that I'm constantly adding to my ever-growing hiking bucket list. So, as some of you know, I've been listening for a while. This summer, I was fortunate enough to spend a couple days in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. It was the first time I camped on my own in the front country, and it got me thinking about how I wanted to transition to backcountry camping. So I was lucky enough to meet Riley Smith um, through Instagram and You know, we're both podcasters, so it was great to connect with him. And Riley has kind of, you know, he had been through that transition. So it was a great conversation. We get to talk about the transition from day hiking to adding more miles in to backcountry camping. We talk about just backcountry camping basic and doing your first kind of major through hike. And it was uh, the John Muir Trail for him. And of course, you know, I've been thinking about doing the High Sierra Trail, kind of similar, but a lot less miles, but a nice lead in to the JMT. And for me, you know, the JMT seems achievable, right? I can keep my job. Um, It's 211 miles and it's in the beautiful um, Sierra Nevada, passes through Kings Canyon and just, you know, gorgeous through Yosemite. So, you know, you think about it and like, this is the perfect, perfect backdrop for a first through hike. So listen in on my conversation. We'll get to talk about his hiking background and much more. And we'll also get to talk about Riley's podcast, Broken Laces. So I'm looking forward to sharing this conversation with you. And as always, I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Let me know what you think about the episode. And if you've done the John Muir Trail or the High Sierra Trail, you know, let me know. How was it? Give me some tips. And now on to my conversation with Riley. So I'm here with Riley Smith. He also is a fellow podcaster. Thanks for coming on, Riley. Absolutely. Joy joy to be on the podcast. So I um, want to talk to you, of course, about hiking. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me what got you into hiking. Yeah, I grew up in, in the state of Utah where there's plentiful outdoors. And, and I'm one of those rare cases that you don't know what's in your own backyard until you leave it. Um, didn't do too much outdoor hiking types of activities. You know, we went camping as a family. Um, we went to a few parks here and there. But it wasn't a, a kind of a primary um, you know, way of vacationing for us. And so once I got into college and I was a biology environmental science major and you start learning about the different aspects of the outdoors, it just, it just started started to be a magnet for me. I just felt like I needed to take advantage of where I lived, where I grew up. I went to a school in Utah, University of Utah. And so all the, of course, the national parks there pulled me, um, out and, and national parks tend to have that ability to, make you feel safe and comfortable, but give you enough of an adventure to kind of get you along your way. So, yeah. So coming from Utah and where did you go next? Are are you still there? Yeah, no, I, I've lived in 
a total of four more states. So I spent some time in North Carolina afterwards, uh, which was great to see different types of ecosystems, spending a lot of time, uh, you know, in the Smokies, uh, along the Blue Ridge there with Shenandoah, uh, et cetera. And so did some time out there for a couple of years. Then I moved to Arizona, which was great to just experience a totally different ecosystem. Uh, did, did a lot of hiking around that state and then spent the last eight years in California and was, was fortunate enough and kind of made it a, a goal of mine to see every national park. There's nine total down there. And so did a lot of backpacking and hiking along there, and I'm currently living in, in Portland. Wow. So every place you've listed are have some amazing hiking um, opportunities. So you definitely have uh, made, your, made your life somewhat, you know, associated with the outdoors, right? I mean, you totally can just, you know, the Smokies, Arizona, and California, and, and now, um, and now uh, Portland, which is obviously two hours wherever you go you have some amazing places to go there exactly yeah i've been very for i mean i'd like to think it was intentional uh each each choice but not not always is it the number one driver but it's definitely a, a driver and a, a part of the consideration and you know it just new, new north carolina being the only one on the eastern seaboard i really try to take advantage of going up and down the 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 coast there and making sure i hit as much as i could up uh, but yeah, it's a it's a beautiful country and one we're very fortunate uh, to be in for the aspect of of hiking. So tell me a little bit about you said you you're doing you've done a lot of hiking and backpacking um, and you spent uh, you know a good portion of that time in California so you're able to get out um, see a bunch of things. What really got you into expanding into I guess the backpacking portion of it? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's it's one that anytime I'm talking to a, a beginner or a novice, um, there's just I I feel like a good percentage of the country doesn't even go to the parks, and for those who go, uh, like ninety to ninety five percent stay in the front country on on paved trails or something that's easily accessible, and that's I'm happy for for those people and and getting out and getting you know, getting exposed in whatever way that makes sense for them. But then you realize there's just a few select people that go a little bit deeper and it just you hit that solitude. You, you test yourselves in different ways, uh, both mentally and physically. I think it's that challenge of uh, putting everything on your back and, and finding a place that maybe nobody's been to or maybe nobody's been to recently. And so that was what attracted me. And I just realized some of the parks that you know, I loved, I hadn't really touched. And so to make sure to, to get that exposure and, and really test yourself was what stood out to me. So what did you love about that transition? I guess, um, you know, you're talking about testing yourself and, you know, putting everything on your back and being able to, you know, get out there, understand your limits, get some solitude in nature. But how did that transition go for you from the day hikes into the longer adventures? Yeah, it's a good question. You start you start off pretty rough. Um, you don't necessarily know what to pack. Um, your mileage isn't great because if you've just been doing front country hiking, you've probably only hiked, you know, three to six mile um, spreads, if you will, and so it's a, it's a learning curve and it's helpful to go with somebody that you know, who's done it before. It's always one piece of recommendation that I give for those who are trying to get into backpacking. 
is to to go with somebody you know, do something that's you're familiar with. So go to a park that you may be familiar with and just hike a little bit deeper or longer in. Um, and lean on them to to know what you're, you should be bringing, right? Um, we always want to be prepared, but sometimes over-prepared means uh, a miserable backpack. So that transition was was rough in those aspects. But once you kind of got your legs behind you and you realized you could extend that 6 into an 8 into a 10, um, it just meant you could do more in that park. So I got to ask you, are you in the ultralight camp or do you really worry about weight? I'm probably in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, just, it just depends on the situation. If I'm if I'm going with my wife, I might pack some of her stuff or more more things to make it more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also a, a, a great piece of advice for anybody you're trying to bring along into backpacking or maybe they're new to it is to bring some comforts. Um, and those comforts could be related to, a, you know, a good pillow rather than using your clothes or it could be something around food uh, and drink. And so having those comforts is, are super helpful. So I got to ask you then, what is your luxury item on the trail or what you Ooh. would consider a luxury? That's a good question. Cause I, it's a, to, to, yeah, to finish the train of thought, I'm, uh-huh. I'm probably in the, I'm probably in the middle, yeah. um, depending on if it's just like a two day, one night, then I'm probably going to bring, um, a flask of something. Okay. If, if this is, if this is not too family friendly, <laughs> um, let's see. And it's probably food. It's, it's just more, um, more diversity of food options would mm-hmm. probably be where I'd lean. Yeah. I mean, I would say sometimes for me, it's, um, putting that like extra thick book in my backpack. Um, cause I do find just enjoyable to take that book out on the trail and, and, you know, sit out there and read for a while. So that would be my pick for now. Yeah. I'm definitely in that, that, that camp too. I've taken a journal uh, and journaled, uh, especially when you have a lot of free time. So yeah, that makes, that makes sense as well. So tell me about some of the favorite trails you've been on. So what is there, you know, some that stand out, some that, you know, you feel like you want to keep going back to just kind of curious about that. Yeah, I'll, I'll start internationally just because I've been fortunate enough to, to go on some trips and then, uh, add some hiking trails to it. Uh, me and my wife did a few trails down in Patagonia um, it wasn't the circuit, the, the famous W or O circuit, but we kind of got a couple good day hikes in and super beautiful. Um, we were in New Zealand as well. And I did New Zealand's got like their national treks. They're like their famous walks. And I was able to do two called the Kepler and the, the, the route or route to burn. I don't know how to enunciate that correctly. Um, and so those would stand out as just like really lifetime hikes in terms of here in the States. Having lived in in California, I, I did hit the Sierras quite a bit, so I think those are pretty fond in my mind. And and I was fortunate to do the John Muir Trail uh, a couple years back, and so that trail really stands out as kind of a lifetime favorite hike that I've done. Okay, so I'll ask you more about um, the John Muir Trail in a minute here, but let me go back to some of the international travel you've done. So, so was that something you just had to prioritize to say, Hey, I want to get out here. I want to see the world and and hike, you know, what, what kind of spurred you to, to do some of that? 
Yeah, for the the Argentina, I mean, we went Tina and did kind of the hits in, in Buenos Aires, and we realized we were close to some other attractions, and, and Patagonia just having that name mm-hmm. and that brand was like, how close are we? What's the flight cost? What would we do if we got down there? And so just started to do some of the research and realizing we had, you know, uh, three days, two nights or whatever it was, um, knew that we could knock off a couple of like eight mile type hikes. Um, so that was just more of a curiosity, uh, take advantage of being down in that, in that area of the world. Um, and fortunate their summer, um, of course, uh, was helpful. And so that's, that one's just more of, it's got a brand and we're close enough. The, the New Zealand one, I didn't know enough about their, their kind of culture and there's new, there's Kiwis, New Zealanders who try to make it a lifetime goal to do all of the great walks. And these great walks range from like 20 miles to uh, much longer, probably three to four times that. And I found we were in the South Island of New Zealand and, and that's kind of more where the nature hiking centric part of, of New Zealand is a lot more open space. And they have a national park called Fjordland national park. And so we just did some research again, just to see what was well-regarded and, and obviously power the internet to look at some of the images and see what types of hikes there are. Uh, another, another kind of key factor is we, we in the States don't have huts typically. And so to do kind of hut hiking, uh, was really intriguing and something that we wanted to try out as well. So what is that about? What's hut hiking then? Yeah. So, uh, I think mainly across the world and and all countries besides ours, they've they've basically put huts every I don't know eight to ten miles, um, and you obviously have to reserve them just as you would like a hotel, and they're typically uh, very community based bunk bed types of layouts, oh, wow. and so you show up, um, you've made your reservation. If you get there early enough, you get to choose your bunk, which is a key key part to hut hiking that we learned because we strolled in at like 6, 6, 30 p.m. And everybody's, um, you know, there's stoves in these huts. And so you get you get uh, your cookware out and make whatever meal you got on hand. Um, But those who've already been there earlier have already claimed their their bed. And so I think we were one of the last to check in that night and we got the top bunk uh, apart from each other. Uh And so that's. That's a, a good tip uh, to learn, to try to get in there a little bit early. Well, that's interesting, though, the whole hut experience. I mean, they're in here, you know, in the in the States, a lot of what we have are shelters. And, right. you know, people are going, you know, from shelter to shelter. and uh, But those, you know, are, are pretty basic. So I would imagine that the shelter experience versus the hut experience is a lot different. Yeah, and it just allows you to plan your hike so you don't have to carry a tent and and some of those other key I mean it's tents. You still want to carry a sleeping bag, obviously, but you can really lighten your load and that means you can you can hike, you know, more successfully. That's a good way to think about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned spending a lot of time in the Sierra. Um mm-hmm. and, you know, having that be, you know, kind of somewhat near to you when you were in uh, California and taking advantage of, of that. So you uh, hiked the John Muir Trail, you said. So did you through hike it or did you break it up? Tell me a little bit about the JMT. Yeah, I, I hiked from Yosemite to, to Mount Whitney or that, that'd be southbound um, per the vernacular. 
and did it in in one fail swoop. So through hiked it. I had planned to do it in 16 days and was fortunate enough to knock off some mileage early and, and did it in 13 days. Um, it's 212 miles long. So if you can average 10 mile days, you can do it in 20 days. If you can average about 15 miles, you can do it in about the time that that I did it in. So yeah, you definitely did n- knock out some mileage. So the JMT itself, do you have to have permits? Kind of what was the situation for you to plan it that to kind of figure out how to to maneuver through the trail. Yeah, there's there's definitely a permit system. It's gotten very popular. It's 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 part of the PCT, the Pacific Coast Trail, about ninety nine percent synonymous with with that section. Um, there's a maybe one part where they diverge, but they meet up, you know, five ten miles away. So there's just a lot of hikers either doing the JMT or the PCT. And so you do need to apply basically where you enter. Um, so if you're going to start in the in the beginning uh, from the north side, that's Yosemite. And so you have to apply through Yosemite National Park and they have their own permit system. And they have so many JMT through hikers that they allow to pass through Donahue Pass, which is kind of the last, last part of Yosemite that you'll go through until you enter a different national forest. So you basically have to enter a lottery system. You name kind of three trailheads that you would like to enter within Yosemite, the dates you would like to enter, and you submit it. And if you don't get it, you can always, uh, you know, drive up to one of the trailheads and try to get a walk-in or a standby pass. And based off what I saw, those I think it's possible, especially if you hang out for a day or two. Uh, but if you don't have that time to kind of wait around, you definitely need to enter that lottery system or even um, apply through another national forest in which uh, you can enter the trail. So did you get your first ask when you did the lottery or what happened there? I think I got the second. So the first one was to to officially start from Yosemite Valley, the the official start of the trailhead. Uh, But there's also other entrances. And I got one that was just six miles up the trail. And so I entered kind of from the side, hiked like four miles to get to the trail. And once I got to the trail, um, I was basically like six in, if you will. Um, but you could, uh, my third choice was Tuolumne Meadows, a very f- famous, um, part on the, the Tioga road. So, uh, yeah, I felt pretty happy with what I got. It, it was, um, close enough to the beginning. So you talked about it, uh, kind of runs that section and is also part of the PCT, right? Yeah. So was it pretty crowded even with the lottery and the permit system did you uh were you with a lot of hikers or did you have some solitude yeah a little bit both and and that's kind of especially being my first long you know through hike it was nice to run into people um but there's definitely plenty of time for you to find that solitude and i was hiking solo oh so um that 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 was definitely part of it but the the earlier parts where you're hiking through Yosemite and you're running into um like Tuolumne Meadows where it's a high ground congregation of people day hiking and just sightseeing um those first two or three days you're you're running from Yosemite to Mammoth Lakes so you're you're running into people but once you kind of got past that part and through the back kind of uh northeastern part of King's Canyon um 
there's really no roads to get to the trail. You have to hike in to get to that part. And so you're, you're pretty much with other JMT hikers, namely going southbound and then obviously PCT hikers uh, going northbound. So what do you feel you learned from that experience? From a hiker perspective, uh, I'd normally just been doing, you know, three day, two nights Mm -hmm. and that's always a good refresh, um, for us who, you know, have full-time jobs or other obligations. Um, it serves its purpose, but for somebody who's never done a long through hike and I got to, you know, night two, there was just some sort of mental trigger that was, was telling me, Oh, it's time to go home. Mm -hmm. And I actually had a moment where I was like, maybe I should just go home because that's how, how I feel. Right. But fortunately I just had to do another day. And once you kind of got into the, what's the word I'm looking for, got into the routine of the trail, it was really refreshing. And the best way I can describe it is similar to how you sometimes have to defrag a computer and mm-hmm. just kind of get rid of all the junk files on your computer. Like the the monotony of waking up, walking, eating dinner, and then going to sleep are literally the only three things you care about. And so your mind just kind of enters a really simple state, um, not confounded by abstract thoughts or whatever. So that that's what I learned was possible from a hiking perspective. You know, from a hiking perspective, you, you know, you talked about, okay, there's this trigger, there's this moment of, you know, well, you know, and I think probably everyone um, at some moment, whether it's even just a long hike, um, there is a moment where you're like, uh, do I want to keep doing this? So, you know, you hit that moment and then you came, you know, out of it knowing that, yes, you did, but you know, from a, I guess a personal also Mm -hmm. level, how did it change you when you got back or what did you take away from the experience? Yeah, I I think a lot of what I just talked about from a mental perspective, Mm -hmm. uh, you can apply elsewhere. Um, and just realizing the simplicity and things, um, translates a little bit to how you approach your day to day. So I, I would say mentally that's, that's, a big part of it. I think from a physical perspective, um, I was really nervous about having different ailments come up or or, or muscle issues um, or the pack was too heavy and, and shoulders hurt or whatever. But once, once you hit that three-day mark, your body just kind of assumed the load and the pressures and just kind of operated in a really steady state. Um, I was nervous. I was going to have to pop like ibuprofen every night or do a lot of stretching and yoga. Like, and it just, it wasn't that it was, you know, get to camp, make dinner, do a little bit of light stretching. But by the time 8 PM, you know, hit and it was dark, your body was ready to shut down. And, and when you woke up, you were ready for it again. So that was really unique to kind of learn from a physical sense of what your body can build itself, build itself up for. So what was your favorite section of that trail? Was there one for you? Yeah, I would say once you, you cross the hundred mile mark, you start to enter Kings Canyon. Um, and Kings Canyon, really, you spend probably three to four days in, um, it's, it's probably the largest chunk of the trail. And that if, if you're familiar with just driving into Kings Canyon, there's only one road that accesses it directly. Um, and it ends at a station called roads end just to, to belabor the point. 
Um, but you can't really get into the back back country without hiking, you know, 25, 30 miles. And so for you to kind of just stroll into the back part of it and then be on that trail for three to four days, it's just really hard to, to do that. And so that section really stands out just giant monoliths of granite and, um, roaring rivers, um, beautiful, beautiful alpine lakes, and you're doing a lot of passes as well. So when you get to that section, you're kind of waking up in the morning, scaling up to, you know, 10 to 12,000 feet and then coming back down into some sort of valley and you wake up and you do it again the next day. Um, so that, that really stands out to me. Were you, um, were you also hitting still snow? Was there still snow patches when you were on the JMT at that yeah. elevation? Yeah, that that year was a very um, wet snow year, unlike a lot of the past eight to 10 years in, in the Sierras where it's been in drought. So one of the key tips I have if you're trying to do the JMT is to join the online groups. Um, the Facebook group for the JMT hikers in that year was really helpful because you're seeing images and videos of how bad the passes were, you know, in June. And I was fortunate to land a lottery date of August 1st. And so when you were seeing some of the stuff in June, you started to get a little nervous about how much kind of snow mountaineering you would have to do. And on top of that, the water crossings are kind of a big concern in doing it in a very wet year like that. So you, you kind of had to prep and understand what you were getting into. And fortunate for me, the pass, uh, the snow passes were maybe, you know, half to a mile long. And so normally you would go up the, the snow part and you come down the other side and it would be melted on the other side. So what about the water crossings then? Um, I'm assuming that most of them didn't have foot bridges or anything for you to, to go over or, or you know, was it a little of both? A little bit of both. Okay. I mean, definitely, definitely some of the bigger rivers are going to have bridges and, and other ways. But when you're dealing with uh, your regular run of the creek, there might be some logs that have been placed down, you know, you quote unquote randomly by a hiker. And so you kind of you're either stone hopping or you for some, they just wear, you know, light, ultralight kind of shoes that they just chomp through the water. Um, and, you know, you're going to hit a lot of water that day. So you just hike with it. There's a couple in which you would you would get to and you realize you need to navigate a quarter mile up or down the river to find a, a down tree to cross. There's sometimes the trails just became little creeks themselves. And there's a couple of famous water crossings that happen, whether it's it's a wet year or not. And you just know that that day um, you want to try to do it in the morning. Something that I've that I learned on this trail is you want to do water crossings in the morning. That's when they're lighter they're slower. Uh, you do them in the afternoon where there's potential that more snow melt will enter that stream and they get a little bit faster and, and deeper. And so if you knew that you had maybe a, a weird water crossing come up, you try to time it that way. Now, that's really, really good advice. So I'm curious, uh, from ones that you just had to go through, how deep did the water get on you? Yeah, so there's the the famous one, and unfortunately, it's really slow. And and going into that, you know that, but it gets about hip deep. Wow. Um, there was a couple that are that are knee deep that are a little bit faster, and so I I typically don't hike with trekking poles. I I find myself distracted by them often, but I I brought along one because I knew water crossings might be an issue, and I wanted that third point of contact. 
And so in some of those knee high, you know, not not rapids, but, uh, you know, it had some speed to it. And if you slipped, um, you want to get washed away, but you might, well, you know, wash down 10 feet or so. Uh, you, you definitely had that third point of contact was was important. Um, and you brought I brought water shoes. And so when you hit and you knew you had to cross rather than ruin your hiking boots and and the pair of socks you were wearing, just take all those off, string them on your backpack and put your water shoes on and then change on the other side. Yeah. See, all this stuff, this is all good information because I think people who haven't done it uh, definitely need to know this stuff. And like you said, to go out there to the you know, Facebook groups and different things where you're kind of knowing what the current situation is of the trail. On a year like that, you just got to be really in tune with the possible scenarios that you're going to put yourself into. Like I'd played out scenarios where I hit a river and I got scared or nervous and maybe it's only 4 p.m. that day. And I like to hike to, you know, 8, 7, 8 p.m. and right before sun goes down. But if if, if I think it's going to be bad, then I'm either going to wait for somebody being a solo hiker just to see if there's a, a potential, you know, partnership or possibility that, you know, we can help each other out. Or you just got to be an adult and make it an adult decision and say, I'm going to wait till morning where it's calmer. And so that's mm-hmm. you have to play some of those scenarios out in your mind when you're doing a hike like this and you don't have, you know, cell service and you're by yourself. So, yeah, just be comfortable going in. So speaking of, uh, yeah, being out there and having no cell service, did you take along emergency locator kind of a device, something like that? No, I didn't. And, and I think my wife would sign up for that idea now. Um, I, I thought with as many, you pass like 10, 11 passes on, on the JMT and just being at that elevation, I thought I'd run into it a few times. And it's funny because on day two, the first pass of being Donahue Pass, there was a group of six or seven people up there talking on the cell phone. And so I was like, oh, okay, so I'll be able to probably communicate every other day. And between Donahue and Whitney, my cell phone never found a tower. And, you know, I knew that was a possibility and I had prepped my wife for that possibility. I knew that when I resupplied, and we can talk about resupplies in a little bit, but I resupplied at mile 105 at a place called Muir Trail Ranch. Um, I knew they had internet, so I knew by like day six I'd be able to check in and kind of let her know what the status was. And so I kind of prepped her uh, for when I'd be exiting the trail and was able to let her know that I was that I was doing okay. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I um, actually just recently picked up Garmin and Reach Mini. And, you know, I find it very useful when I'm by myself in a no cell, you know, service zone, just to, like you said, send that message and make sure, you know, people kind of know, hey, I'm, I'm doing okay. But, but I also like the whole like disconnecting. So, you know, not having cell service is, is kind of a blessing sometimes. Definitely. And I think if I were to do another hike like this, one of those would end up in my bag. I I did run into, by about day six, seven, I ran into a group, uh, another solo hiker and another couple who were kind of hiking the same pace as I. Mm -hmm. And so uh, certain days I'd be hiking with them and certain days I would, you know, see them in the morning and see them when we camped. You know, it was, we kind of knew we had the same 
pace, but also the same idea on how you would approach the trail in terms of where you'd want to camp. And so he had one. And so I was able to check in, I think once, you know, around day nine, 10, just to let her know that we were still on pace for, for when we were leaving the trailhead. So you probably then, because you had mentioned at the very beginning, you thought it would take you 16 days. So uh, there was probably a point where you're like, okay, honey, if, you know, on day 17, this is what you need to do, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But still a little bit nerve wracking, I would think. Yeah, it's interesting for sure, because we could have probably got out in 12 or 14 and we just kind of landed in the middle and just said, well, we'll make it by day 13. And I was the only reason that I was able to shave so many miles off is in the first day when you tell Yosemite where you're going to camp. Um, I got to that spot at like 1 p.m. on day one. Uh-huh. And so I realized that I needed to keep going. And so I ended up hiking like a 20 mile day that day um, for, for various reasons. And right out of the gate, I was like, wow, I just did like two days of hiking um, in one day. So there was there was definitely times where you could shave a day or two. You also mentioned about resupplying. So did you just do one resupply through the the trip or did you have um, a couple? Yeah, there's there's four main points in which you can resupply. And if, if you just Google like JMT resupply, there's a lot of great information. Um, there's there's one at about like mile 30, 40. There's another one at like mile 60, 70 area. And those were a little too early. Uh, I, I You have to carry a bear can mm-hmm. uh, on this trail. And so you usually can fit or squeeze six to eight meals worth of food in there. So for the first five, six days, I, I could get to the 100-mile mark, as I mentioned, where Muir Trail Ranch is. And then at that point, you need to fit the rest of your meals uh, because there's really no other resupply. You have to hike eight miles off trail to get to a town to resupply. Whereas in those first 100 miles, even though I wasn't resupplying at a place called Red's Meadows, which is in the Mammoth Lakes area, there's still a restaurant there. You can still like pick up food from like a convenience store situation. And so you can add to your kind of food pack. Um, but once you've crossed that 105, like you need to put everything in that can or you need to find a way off the trail. And so I was able to fit, I think, eight days of food uh, in the bear can, very tightly packed. And that was the heaviest the pack would have been at that point. So it weighed about 38 pounds. Um, so I definitely not ultra light, but it wasn't, I wasn't carrying, you know, cast iron pans or anything as well. So yeah, all this, um, definitely interesting. I'm, uh, hoping next year to do the high Sierra trail, which is, oh, you know, quite a bit shorter than the JMT. I think it's uh, about 60 miles, but I'm hoping that's like my first foray into, you know, a, a little longer trail and get that longer experience. So all of this is really helpful as I kind of think about planning for it. Yeah, maybe shorter, but you're climbing mm-hmm. probably as much. So so it's definitely nothing to, to blink at. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you obviously have a big love of hiking and being outdoors. And so I also want to talk about, you know, you started a podcast too. So um, you have Broken Laces podcast and tell me, I guess, a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, I think just like uh, probably a similar story. And, and I'd love to hear kind of how you shared your, your, you know, evolution into becoming a host. But 
uh, a few years back was searching for for some podcasts um ran into a few um but also i i i think i realized that i had a network of people who worked in the outdoors industry and they had really cool stories um so it, it really started with me meeting a lot of people and wanting to to share their stories and and then I realized uh, while I'd listened to some outdoors podcasts, they were they're very appropriately themed and, and narrowed down on a particular uh, topic within the outdoors. And I just th- I think the outdoors and the premise of all those who live, work, and play in the, in, in the outdoors industry, there's just a lot of stories to be told. And so I approach it from from a perspective of trying to cast a really wide net and talk to the gear makers or the makers of you know the different backpacking food or talking to policy experts or rangers within the parks and just trying to really connect with everybody who interacts with the outdoors. And I think you've just looking at your full list of guests, you're, you're kind of approaching it in a similar fashion. Yeah, definitely. We're definitely um, a lot alike in that way. Um, I started my show um, because I wanted to learn more. Uh, I wanted to talk to other people. I wanted to share their stories. I wanted to be inspired and just, you know, kind of examine the world out there. And then also, you know, people and communities that were supporting hikers. And like you, I had found a lot of uh, podcasts out there for outdoors, but a lot of it was very, you know, much on through hikers or just, you know, specific trails and things like that. So for me, it was, you know, that isn't necessarily who I'm about. So I wanted to try to, to find something that, that matched my interests. Yeah. And it's just to, to further on that. And I think a lot of people interact in the outdoors in one way and they get what they need out of it. And I love those people for doing that. And that's, I think to each their own. And just for me, I realized once I'd met enough of the, of the diversity of people who are doing work in this space, just how wide ranging it is and how many jobs it supports and how many hobbies it supports and just how it supports the livelihood of people. And so I was just like, wow, this is a really big, this is a big bubble of people. And so how do you start to, to cry, you know, take a crack at it and talk to as many diverse, uh, you know, thoughts and voices out there. So you have, you know, you have some episodes behind you now. So tell me, I guess, what, what's opened your eyes, you know, as part of it or what, what have you learned from, from doing your show? Yeah, that's a, that's a solid question, and it's an appropriate timing for that question. I just finished up. I'm I'm doing more of a season approach, just because I I still haven't figured out the the muscle and how to turn these around, you know, in a week's worth of time. Um, and so I've I've logged nine episodes, and I'm kind of taking time off to to think about how I want to approach the next set of episodes, develop a guest list, you know, hone in on that theme a little bit and do, you know, a little bit of talking about the podcast, which I'm thankful to, to be on your show to do. So, yeah, I, I think what's what's down the line for me is is continuing to find that breadth and spreadth of of the people that I want to engage in. Um, there's people that I reached out to who said they were interested, but kind of wanted to see how I got it off the ground. And so revisiting some of those conversations. And I think kind of the key learning that I had this year was was probably more practical, as you can imagine, of of how to set up your guests for success, you know, and, and how to to you know, prime them before the before the interview to make sure you know what kind of stories they're they're willing to share and and what's important to them in what they want to share because I think it's really important to have a guest on who has 
not a pitch or an ad to, to display, but to, to really have some energy behind the thoughts that they want to share. Yeah, that's, that's all good stuff. And I know um, taking a little bit of time to recharge and kind of refocus is also good too. Personally, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to wait till the year mark. So kind of getting my plan in place and, uh, you know, learning from others, learning from people who are just, you know, like you got some guests and good energy around them and, you know, putting those, you know, first seasons out as well as people that have done four or five, six seasons. So I I think it's a great community to be part of. I'm really excited. Yeah. And that's the cool, uh, and you probably experienced this, uh, you know, fivefold of, when you have a conversation, just how well willing people are to share uh, the people they know. I feel like I just get random texts and emails that say, oh, I just met this person or you should be talking to my friend. And so it's just opened up a lot of doors, not only from a podcast perspective, but just to open up that amount of doors to meet different people is a really cool part of part of this hobby and, and role. Yeah. And you probably have now a lot more people to hike with, right? Exactly. (laughs) I know that's the fun part. So tell me about what are some of your next adventures? What, what do you have planned uh, for ending the summer? Yeah, I think uh, hiking wise, I'm going to try just just moved to Portland uh, pretty recently. So I want to get up into Washington before the summer ends and, and maybe do some hikes in the Olympic Peninsula, uh, specifically Olympic National Park. Uh, there's an opportunity for me to go to the enchantments, uh, which is a range in the Cascades. It's, I only heard about, and you know, when I moved closer to them and so, yeah, exploring a little bit of Northern Washington, I think is probably short term, long term. There's a couple of long through hikes that, that are speaking to me. I don't know how I can fit in, you know, taking off weeks or a month at a time, but a shorter through hike, there's, there's the Colorado trail, which you can do like a small section of. The CDT, for some reason, speaks to me a little bit, but that's, you know, taking four or five months off, and it's just something that I haven't even approached the scale of, and so I probably need to get another kind of shorter 200, 300, 400-mile hike underneath me. Well, there's definitely a plethora of places to go where you're at in the Pacific Northwest. I love Oregon. I love spending time there, and, you know, there's... There's places like, I think it's the Oregon Coast Trail, um, which is a, a few hundred miles. So maybe, you know, yep. kind of expanding into some of those as well as you as you look at, you know, going to Colorado or the CDT. But yeah, a good point that you said how, you know, certain hikes and certain trails are, you know, do speak to you. And I think that's probably the commonality with all of us hikers that we do tend to be moved by specific landscapes, specific trails and, and that whole experience. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, if I didn't just hike a good chunk of the Sierras for the past eight years, I'm sure it would be the PCT, but I feel, feel like I'm in, I of course haven't done it, but I've seen a lot of it. And so, um, just looking for a little different, different now. Well, I do look forward to hearing about your um, upcoming adventures, what you do end up hiking, um, whether it's, you know, some weekends or um, getting a little bit, you know, longer miles under your, under your belt while you're up there. And I wish you a lot of luck with season two in your podcast. Um, tell the listeners kind of how they can subscribe so they can catch up in the meantime and then also how to find you. 
Definitely. So we're brokenlacespodcast.com. Uh, you can find us on all the different podcasting services that you're familiar with. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, amongst many others. And yeah, I, I, it's funny. I just recorded uh, episode nine kind of closing out the season. And it was my first podcast just uh, not interviewing anyone. And I think you've maybe done this a few times mm-hmm. of just uh, getting on and, and sharing your experiences and perspective. And so now I'm intrigued a little bit about um, how much I have to, to share with uh, with my listeners on, on tips and perspectives. So I might be playing around with a little bit of that in the meantime as I develop the guest list. Uh, but yeah, brokenlacespodcast.com kind of for all your uh, up-to-date uh, information and, and new podcasts. All right. I'll be sure to put the links in the show notes and in ways that people can connect with you and reach out and, and, and see what you're up to. Cool. Thank you, Riley, for coming on today. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more. Awesome. Joy chatting with you. So thanks again for listening today. And if you're enjoying the show, uh, please go out and give it a review on iTunes and also go ahead and, you know, share it with some of your hiking friends and um, family members who might be interested in learning more about the things that you love to do. I appreciate every one of you. And I got to tell you, it's always makes my day. I always smile when I hear from one of my listeners and I get to connect with you outside of the show. So you can find me at The Hike Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can email me at hikepodcast at gmail.com. So looking forward to hearing from you. And until next time, see you on the trail. (laughs) 